Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Christopher Guest asked Fred Willard to appear in Waiting for Guffman, Guest had a surprise for him. He told me the idea, and he says, there's no script. It's going to be improvised. And I thought, oh, boy, isn't that wonderful? No script, no annoying lines to memorize. And I was walking back to the car, and I said, wait a minute. I'm going to have to come up with all the lines. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Fred Willard. If a director is looking for the perfect guy to play an oblivious, cocky buffoon, well, Fred's your man. I like to play very clueless, happy-go-lucky, no worries kind of guy, and I'm just the exact opposite of that. And then find out why he turned down the lead in the movie Airplane. Whoops. Then later, I'll talk to David Gordon Green. He's directed everything from pensive, dramatic movies like All the Real Girls to huge stoner action comedies like Pineapple Express. His new movie, Prince Avalanche, is somewhere in between. You know, this is an 88-minute movie. We wanted to make something short and sweet, but gave you something to think about. Plus, Pitchfork's Ian Cohen recommends a couple of great new heavy rock records. And I'll tell you why you should check out my favorite Robin Thicke record. Yes, I have a favorite Robin Thicke record. It's great, too. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. No one has ever played the ugly American like Fred Willard. If you need an open-hearted blowhard or a self-inflating doofus, Willard has been on hand for 50 years. Salesmen, color commentators, middle managers, over 200 roles. Here he is in one of his many great parts as third-tier folk music manager Mike LaFontaine, whose brief moment of fame was as a game show star in the 1970s. This from the movie A Mighty Wind. Let's start right out. Hey, what happened? As you know, back in 1970, I start on a series called What Happened? And every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, Hey, what happened? <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. <laughs> I got a real red wagon. And uh, <laughs> I can't do my work. And I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. But it only lasted a year, and that's good because that's how you establish a cult. (laughs) Fred Willard is one of the stars of the new film Dealing with Idiots, and he's just finished a run on HBO's Family Tree, among many other projects. It's funny, I hate to laugh at my own lines, but you you forget... Uh, what you said uh, after a few years. And, uh, I, w- I, had, it, I hadn't watched that movie in a while, and watching that clip, I mean, I remembered what happened vividly, but I had <laughs> forgotten about the second catchphrase, we got a real red wagon. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but uh, from I Can't Do My Work, it came, I was on a series, and the, our director uh, said that once. They wanted to uh, change, you know, uh, the hours or something. He says, if we do that, I can't do my work. <laughs> We were, he was overworking us to begin with, and I thought, geez, take it easy. He'd had a heart attack. He was recovering, and he, uh, you know, I just said, relax. It's just a sitcom. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, first about your years growing up. Um, you grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland. Shaker Heights, Ohio, yes. Uh, pretty on um, exceptional. Uh, 
I was just a regular kid, and, uh, you know, I loved baseball and went to grade school, and uh, everything was fine. I want to ask you, I mean, you you mentioned that you had a pretty regular childhood, but you also, you, you lost your father when you were a yes, teenager yes, or yeah, something, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that was tough. Yeah, 12 years old, he just, he just uh, died. What were your folks like? Kind of straight, I mean, to, around me. I, I'm sure they had fun with their friends. But I had aunts and uncles who were a lot of fun, and I always looked forward to them coming over. They were just like party people and funny and doing jokes. Did you did you get along with your stepfather when your mother remarried? <clears throat> no, not really. I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine yeah. to, to lose your father at that age, any teenager getting along with a new stepfather. Yeah, he was not. Uh, it was like I, I refer to him as my wicked stepfather. I think as I look back, I was a little hard on him mentally. It was probably tough for him, too. Um, but he, he was a former military man in the reserve, the Air Force Reserve or something. He was very critical of me, and uh, no, it wasn't pleasant. And they, they, they sent me away to a, a military school. Now, this is an interesting story. My mother, again, she would threaten me if I did something wrong. We're going to send you away to military school. So finally he said, all right, go ahead and send me, you know, being kind of I was about 13 or 14. So the pamphlets started arriving from military schools all over the country, uh, pictures of uh, young military men with, you know, uh, insignias on their arms and jumping horses over. And I said, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? All of a sudden, one came from a place in Louisville, Kentucky, and the selling point to them was every winter the whole school moved down to Venice, Florida. <laughs> where springtime spends the winter. And there's pictures of people on the beach and, you know, playing volleyball and softball. And I said to my mom, I said, I think this school, I might enjoy this. It was in Louisville, so it wasn't that far from Cleveland. So I ended up going there the two years of my uh, high school, and I just had a wonderful time. It was not, it was easier than my public school had been. A lot of people from Kentucky and southern Ohio and all. But I made some good friends there and went down to Florida every for, for three months. It was just wonderful. I played on the baseball team. And uh, when did uh, you get the when did you get the idea that, that being an actor was a choice? I mean, I can't imagine there was like a lot of aspiring actors hanging around the halls of the Virginia Military. Institute. No, no, there weren't. <laughs> there was never anyone saying, "Let's put on a show." <laughs> um, I'll do hair and makeup. Uh, yeah. No, there was none of that. They did have a variety show once a year. You're talking now about uh, my college. Uh, they would have a variety show, but guys who would who would dress up like in quote drag. It would be a dress with their pants rolled up so to make sure they show their hairy legs and be holding a cigar in their hand and a cheap wig. Um, I'd want to be a baseball player. And when I went to New York, for some reason, I wanted to be a disc jockey because I loved rock and roll music. And I would love the opportunity to play like the original rock and roll song uh, and then who, the version that Pat Boone did or even Elvis or Little Richard. And then I found out that those disc jockey shows were programmed. They told you what to play. So then I thought, I think I'll be an actor. It'll be easy. I'd seen <laughs> movies, and I said, that, well, that can't be too hard. I can act. I'm impressed that you decided to go into comedy specifically, because comedy, acting, acting is, a, is a tough gig, not least because you have to get roles. But to do, I, I just assume I would get roles. Well, I didn't start out to go into comedy. I thought, you know, I didn't know. I, I for a while I thought I'd like to be a, a western cowboy actor, and then um, I, I went to some casting guy. You know, he made the rounds, and the guy said you should pursue 
roles like Burt Lancaster. So I said, oh, Burt, oh, gee. So he became my idol. And he still is. I look back and I got Burt Lancaster. So I wanted to be a serious actor, but I, I found it, I lent myself more easily to comic roles. It was a little more fun. It was a little easier. I found it was a little easier to get laughs. Uh, and there was much more competition in, in, in to be a, a serious actor. It must have been very exciting to be part of that New York scene in the early to mid-60s yep. when when comedy was going from being, you know, whatever, uh, Catskills, one-liners, mm-hmm. interchangeable jokes to mm-hmm. being something where individual acts had individual voices and they were performing for young people who actually liked and got the material. Yeah. You know, rather than just retirees at resorts who yes. just wanted to hear a joke an uncle could tell. Yeah. We came in at the end of that, that you know, Martin and Lewis were just kind of going out, and all the comedy teams where one guy played the trumpet and the other guy was a very handsome guy who sang, or another guy, you know. And my partner and I were kind of interchangeable. We could, One guy would be the straight man in one sketch, and... We had a lot of problems. You know, we'd, we would um, just go to some club and bomb mercilessly. And then we'd go to another club and just – we played a place called The Hungry Eye in San Francisco. Now, Mort Saul had already played there, Jonathan Winters, the, the Peter, Paul, and Mary. And it was a very hip room, and we just killed there. We just killed. And it was wonderful. And then we started getting some TV jobs. We were on Ed Sullivan. Usually to long periods of silence. <laughs> but we would be on Steve Allen, and Steve Allen would walk down the hall at, at the end of the show, and I'd hear him say to his booker, get uh, Greco and Willard back on next week. He, he loved us. Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, uh, The Tonight Show. But it, it was a strange... Uh, and now today, I don't know if I could do it today. Every club has comics are on uh, YouTube and podcasts and webcasts, and improv is the big thing, and uh, it's very uh, scary now. I looked for some clips of your original doubles act. I didn't find anything, but I did find a couple of things from a group called Ace Trucking Company. Oh, that came next. Yeah, that was some... That you were in, in the, I guess, the, the late 60s, beginning of the 70s. Yes. Uh-huh. So l- let's take a listen to a sketch. This is from, oh this is from the Tom Jones Show, uh, a variety show hosted by the Tom Jones we all know and love. In this sketch, you are a uh, you're a studio owner, oh, yeah. and you're standing around waiting for uh, the star of the show to show oh. up so so that you can record. Okay. Where is he? Do you know how much money this recording session is costing Funky Records? The musicians are on double overtime! <laughs> what does that little squirt think he is? He may be a star, but I own this studio. When I get hold of him, I'm going to give him a piece of my... Well, hello there! I was going to give you a piece of my prune Danish. It's delicious. Well, prunes <laughs> is out of the question. I don't know what they does for you, but they makes me sneeze. <laughs> here's some uh, sheet music, Mr. Johnson. You doesn't have to call me Mr. Johnson. You can call me Ray. Okay. Thank you, Ray. Why don't you make it Raymond? Um, that was uh, uh, Billy Saluga. Um, he was so funny. He came up with that character, Raymond J. Johnson Jr., and we got a lot of mileage out of it. And um, uh, it was became like an old burlesque show. In all of these sketches, what I like about it is that I, I can recognize the characters that you've played in the last 20 or 30 years and those characters that you were playing 40, 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. These, these guys who 
you know, enter every enter every scene with a broad smile and then say something clueless. Yes. Yes. Well, I you know, I was all I was always playing in those days the boss or someone figure of authority and then we played at a club out here at the Ice House in Pasadena. And we were in the dressing room, and some guy came back, and I said hello to him. I was talking to me. He says, oh, geez. He says, you know, I've been a big fan for years, but I was always afraid to come up and talk to you because you play such <laughs> such mean characters. So I really had to rethink. I said, geez, I guess I do. It was always easy for me. What I was always doing is kind of mocking those military figures I came up with and, and working. I worked in an office in New York, and those those senseless rules people have. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comic actor Fred Willard. You may have seen him in Christopher Guest movies like Best in Show or A Mighty Wind. He's also in Jeff Garland's new movie, Dealing with Idiots. You, stri- you strike me as a very genial man, perhaps <laughs> not quite as genial as your characters who are absurdly genial often. Yeah, I do play some genial, uh, which I like. <laughs> uh, but I've read elsewhere that you don't think of yourself as necessarily being that guy. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I, I play. Uh, I like to play very clueless, happy-go-lucky, uh, no worries kind of guy, and I'm just the exact opposite of that. I'm uh, Virgo, so I'm everything is. Uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? What happened? You know, is this going to go bad? What? Uh, I think Norm Macdonald once said, hey, "I'm a glass half full guy," but I think that thing on my back may be um, <laughs> cancerous. <laughs> and I said, "Boy, that's the way." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things are going fine. Uh, and to quote another comic, they, he said, uh, you should live like this is the last week of your life. But he found out that could be very expensive, which is true. <laughs> you know, I'd love to live like today is the last day of my life. But, uh, you know, you got to – I might live to be a hundred and something too. I heard somewhere that you got offered the lead in Airplane. Yes. Uh, I was doing – <laughs> Yeah. People always ask me what uh, – you know – what mistakes did you make in your career? Uh, I was doing real people at the time, and they sent me this, this, the script for Airplane. And I'd done a movie. I forget what I'd done. Some movie that had got not do very good reviews. And at the time, there were a whole bunch of movies that didn't get uh, good reviews. And some critic of one movie said, do these actors read these scripts? So I was reading Airplane. And if you remember, there, there were a lot of puns and plays on words and I read it through. I mean, and it some was, of the stupidest jokes of yeah, all time are in yeah. airplane. Yes. And I read it through and I said, I don't get it. <laughs> so I read it. And I remember I was in Chicago do, doing something. And I was talking to my manager on the phone. I said, I, I just don't get it. And he, he's afraid if you don't want to do it, just say no. And so that was my out. I said, no, I, I don't think I'll do it. Okay. So then I did a, a movie called First Family that Buck Henry uh, directed and, and wrote. And we did it. And a few months later, we went in to do looping at, at Warner Brothers. That's where you put the lines in. you know. And he walked in for the looping session. He says, I just saw this year's, this summer's big box office hit. We said, oh, what's that? He said, airplane. I said, oh, boy. <laughs> now, I went to see it, and it was very good. And Robert Hayes was wonderful. And I was tell the story, which is true, that my wife says, well, don't feel that bad. If you'd been the lead, it may not have done that well. Um, <laughs> Let's talk a, a little bit about your work with Christopher Guest in the various faux documentaries that he's made over the past 15 years or mm-hmm. so. And there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a clip. This is from Best in Show, 
in Best in Show, which is a movie about dog shows, mm-hmm. you play the color commentator yes. who is calling the Westminster Dog Show and mm-hmm. and doesn't is clearly just flown in from calling college football games yes. and thinks everyone watching is interested in his career as opposed to the dog show. Yeah, let's take a listen. Uh, you know, it would be funny. I don't know if they can do this. Uh, uh, just an idea off the top of my head. Why didn't he put the blood on, put on one of those Sherlock Holmes hats and put a little pipe in his mouth? Are they ever allowed to do anything like that, dress up a dog in a funny way? No, that's, uh, that's not quite what the uh, purpose of these shows is. But it would, I think it would really get the crowd going. You know, you know what I mean? The Sherlock Absolutely, Holmes hat yes. with the pipe. I don't know if you could make it look like smoke's coming out of the pipe. I think that would be a little dangerous. <laughs> I'd get a kick out of it. Yeah, that, the, 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 the announcer was Jim Piddick. Um, who's one of the writers and producers of Family Tree that was just on. And um, people st- still ask me, he's a real uh, dog show guy. I said, no, he knew no more about dogs than I did. Um, but I just love the way he was very supportive. Yes, absolutely. Yes, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know what he was thinking. <laughs> it, it's it's funny to me because, you know, Christopher Guest was in here not that long ago, and he is such a sort of... Um, he's such a sort of quiet, mm-hmm. thoughtful, succinct speaker uh-huh. and public person. And your characters in, in these movies are basically the opposite of Christopher Guest. Yes. I, I think maybe that's why I, I probably kind of fascinate him. Says, God, uh, yeah, he called me in to, to do uh, the first one, which was Waiting for Guffman. He said, we're going to do this movie. He told me the, 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 the idea. And he says, there's no script. It's going to be improvised. And I thought, oh, boy, isn't that wonderful? No script, no annoying lines to memorize. And I was walking back to the car, and I said, wait a minute. I'm going to have to come up with all the lines. But it was pretty close. I mean, you know, it wasn't just a free fall, you know, for let's everyone get out and show, show a funny there. We all had a certain role and had to get to a certain point. And he filmed about, like, 60 hours and got it down to, what, 85 minutes. So, um it was pretty controlled because I don't think I mean Washington was a very good movie. It was a good plot, and I had to watch it for something. It goes along a nice, some nice twists, and the music was very pretty. You're in this. You're in this new Jeff Garland movie yeah. uh, called Dealing with Idiots. Another and, improv thing. Oh, interesting. And I, I want, um, I, I want to play a, a clip from the movie. This this movie has this amazing cast of yeah. super funny people and super gifted um, comic improvisers. It's uh, about a, a youth baseball team and um, and the parents who are getting involved mm-hmm. in this youth baseball team. And your character in this clip is, is talking about his own son and, and getting him to play My ball. character is doing this? Yeah. All right. And what you got to do is, is hit him a couple of times with the ball. Then they're not afraid of it anymore. You hit him, you pitch the ball and Just hit him? Just pitch him. Watch out! <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. Can you imagine me telling your son that you throw at him uh, on... Purpose and the trouble is he's still afraid. Of it. That made him more afraid. And I said, "Look, it would make me more afraid too." That's the craziest yeah. logic I've ever heard. Yeah, but now he knows what it feels like to be. But I mean, he's ten. Should it just be for fun now? Or it must be so. Yeah, serious. it could be for fun now. You know, you got to think of the future. If we let kids just have fun, uh, they wouldn't do anything. Oh crap! Why do we bet on horses? I, I don't bet on horses. Uh, uh, well. <laughs> It can be fun if you ever win, but you don't know what the hell is going through their mind. <laughs> I think I was just looking at my cell phone, saw my horse lost or something. I forget doing that. I, I kind of remember the idea because I, I'm very fascinated reading about a, a lot of these big leaguers, and almost all of them, 
their dad or they had a coach that for years, you know, get out and hit them 100 grounders a day. And I never had that. I don't think I would have been that good if I did. But uh, I, I read about some fathers who do that, that hit their kid with a ball or make them uh, hit ground balls to the kid and they couldn't catch it. They had to let it bounce off their body or something. And I said, gee, that's tough love. What I thought of when I was hearing, uh, when I was listening to that clip was you talking earlier about your your folks being critical. Yeah. Well, um, I was at the military, when I was in the military school, my stepfather, when I, I, I got to play on the sports teams, which got me out of the military drills. That's one reason I wanted to do it. And he thought that was wrong. It's, you know, that I should have enjoyed the military drills, marching, just senseless marching on the fields. Um, let me say this. I hated the, the whole system, the, 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 the hazing system, the military. But they're over there. They're in uh, uh, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, and God bless them. They're, they're, that's the career they want. And what would we do if we didn't have uh, an army? Well, uh, Fred Willard, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was so exciting and to get to, to get a chance to okay, talk. Okay, you to didn't you. want me to get political there about. Let's oh. get out. Of- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can say whatever you no, want. No, I just, I, I'm just joking. Let's take a few pot shots real quick. Let's take on Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore, I do an impression of him. <laughs> he had kind of a high stentorian voice. Fred Willard, thanks so much for being. Thanks for show. having me. Fred Willard can be seen in the new Jeff Garland movie, Dealing with Idiots. He also appears on ABC's Modern Family, which will be back this fall. After a break, Nate DeMeo will share an episode of The Memory Palace. It's about a house filled with memories of family and show business. You're listening to Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's summer, so maybe all you're listening to is Rupert Holmes' classic hit, Escape, the Pina Colada song. But if you're looking for an alternative beach soundtrack, Ian Cohen's here to recommend some new loud rock releases. Ian writes for Pitchfork and Grantland about punk, metal, and everything heavy. Ian, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you here. Uh, It's great to be here. Let's get right into the music and uh, take a listen to uh, a song from a new album called Engravings from a band called Forest Swords. Uh, This is the single from that record, The Weight of Gold. So, Ian, that's, that's really beautiful. Um, the band Forest Swords is actually a guy called Matthew, Matthew Barnes. Barnes. Yes. He, he's an English guy, and it sounds a little bit like English dance music. 
Yeah, the uh, the original roots of Forest Swords actually go back to I would like the original idea of dubstep, like as it was created in like 2006, 2007, when guys you know like Burial were first starting to come up, like a very dark and dank sound that's kind of meant to be taken on trains rather than you know what dubstep became, which was kind of a synonym for EDM. So yeah, it definitely does have its roots in dance music, but at the same time, you can't actually picture anyone really dancing to it. <laughs> While it's not necessarily like heavy metal, it's very heavy music. The, mu- the music itself has weight and physicality to it. Let's take a listen to your second pick, mm-hmm. which is this band called Crash of Rhinos. Uh, they have a new record called Knots, and this is a, a little bit of a song from that record called Opener. I think it's interesting how that song combines both a really ferocious drive that feels very, very punk rock with some real melodicism and feeling. Yeah, I I agree. You know, um, this band, uh, they're out in the UK and pretty much all of their influences are American, whether hardcore punk or you know, if you want to take the original meaning of the term emo, which comes from emotional hardcore, that's really what this band does for me you know it's got that like hardcore ferocity but done in a way that's a little more user-friendly and melodic and emotive emo had kind of evolved into something that most people consider to be like you know hot topic or swoopy hair i was gonna say a haircut it basically means a haircut or just or or just being sad you know (laughs) but um this gets more towards the roots you know you hear a lot of fugazi in their music just stuff that uh, really started to evolve in the late 90s or, the, you know, in the case of Fugazi since the 80s, but, you know, towards the end of the 90s with Discord in D.C. and a lot of the bands in the Midwest in the late 90s, such as Braid and so forth. Ian Cohen's recommendations this week, Engravings by Forest Swords and Knots by the band Crash of Rhinos. Both records are due for U.S. release this month. You can find Ian's writing on Grantland and Pitchfork. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Nate DeMeo is the creator of a show called The Memory Palace. It's a podcast about history, but it sounds nothing like what you might think of when you hear the phrase, a podcast about history. It's actually something really special. You'll you'll hear in a second. The episode I'm about to share is actually an unusually personal one for Nate. It's about his own family's history. Two quick notes about it before we play it for you. First, yes, that is me at the end performing with uh, my Jordan Jesse Go co-host Jordan Morris. And second, there's a little bit of old school body humor in there. And when I say old school, I mean like 1935 old school. Anyway, here's Nate DeMeo in the Memory Palace with origin stories. I spent my 20s in Providence. I lived in a two-story tenement on the west side of the city, on the other side of the highway from downtown. 
in the other side of the tracks from Brown University and the fancy houses of the east side. My mom grew up in that house. Her father did too. And after my grandfather died at 86 years old, it turned out that his widow couldn't take living there anymore. She couldn't take sharing her space with the ghosts of days spent with her husband and their daughters, with her husband's family, and of herself as a young bride that would appear in every corner, at the top of the stairs, at the sink by the window, in the empty side of the bed. So my grandmother moved out, and I moved in. I loved it. And not just because I was 23 and aimless and got to live by myself, rent-free, in this big old house. I loved the house. Growing up, it had echoed with stories, endlessly repeated at big Italian family dinners, during the tail ends of Christmases with the dying embers, and some uncle conked out in the maroon velour chair. For visitors, for new audiences, the stories were stretched and embellished. For close family, they were invoked. They were compressed like Mandarin proverbs until they could be summoned by a couple of brushstrokes. Dad in the Studebaker. Mom's broken finger. Janice through the bathroom window. I loved those stories. I surely tell stories now because I loved those stories then. And despite the sheer volume and breadth of memories and anecdotes that pile up in the dusty corners of a house occupied by one family since 1914, despite the vast quantity of potential material, most of the stories, the ones in heavy rotation, were drawn from a single shelf. For several years, from the late 1930s through the end of World War II, my grandfather ran a nightclub on the banks of the Patuxent River. It started out as the Hi-Ho, and was eventually rebranded the Club Baghdad, complete with an oasis painted on the wall, and a general Casablanca, Edward Saidi vibe. They did a full review. Crooners, comedians, mid-sized big bands, showgirls, national touring acts, second-tier mob bosses. My grandfather was the MC. One night, a few of the dancers got the flu, and my grandfather called the talent agency up in Boston for some fill-in showgirls. One of them turned out to be my grandmother. And so there are reasons the stories I heard the most were from this era. Because they are the origin stories of one iteration of the family. My mom and her three sisters loved to hear about their mom and dad falling in love. And these stories were great. They were glamorous and dramatic. Dad and the Studebaker and Mom's Broken Finger are good stories. But the club stories were The Day the Bear Got Loose, Dad's Two Girlfriends, The Night the Russian Midgets Got Stuck in the Snow, The Night the Great Dane Danced with the Stick-Up Man, The Night My Grandmother Climbed Up the Ladder Where My Grandfather Stood Hanging the Star on the Christmas Tree by the Coat Check and Surprised Them with Their First Kiss, or The Day They Piled Into the Back Seat of the Bartender's Car on the Way Back from the Beach. She Sat on My Grandfather's Lap and he held her hand, and she had never noticed her hand was so small, and she knew that she loved him. I heard that story a hundred times, the last time I was holding her hand, and it was so small, while my grandfather lay dying in an adjustable bed at Rhode Island Hospital, not long before I moved into the house. The house of stories was also a house of stuff, 80-something years of stuff, packed into closets and crawl spaces and crumbling cardboard boxes stacked in locked rooms. Cigarette cases and tie pins and 
Bakelite clocks and roller skate keys, all of it. My mom and her sisters, no longer needing to ask their parents' permission to poke around in the basement, would send me on missions. One of them would call me up and say stuff like, there's this big Coke sign, I think, from when Uncle Leo ran the concession stand in Narragansett in the 50s. It would look amazing over my new stove. And I'd go digging. But there was one artifact they all wanted more than any other. The holy grail of family objects was a record. They said the Club Baghdad had a record-pressing machine. It was a small device that would actually carve a recording onto an acetate disc. They had this promotion for a while at the club where you could pay a buck and then sing with the band and take the record home, like karaoke or something. So somewhere in the house, they all swore, was a recording of the floor show at the Baghdad. If I could find it, they could hear the Club Baghdad hear dad sing, hear the comedy bits he'd written, hear him introduce the showgirls, picture their mother high-kicking in the middle of the line. I just had to keep digging. I lived in the house for seven years. Every now and then the sisters would check in and ask about the record. I'd tell them about the other stuff I'd found, wonderful things from that golden era of the nightclub. Pictures of the chorus girls, of the dance floor, of the bear before he ran away. Menus, 35 cents for a Boilermaker, a buck ten for the Clamps Casino. But no record. And they'd be disappointed. And I didn't care. Because I found letters and diary entries and pictures of my Nana's cousin Amy, the flapper, who opened up her world such that it was viable to become a showgirl. Okay to climb up a ladder and make the first move. I found union cards and streetcar transfers. The ID bracelet from the trip to the hospital when they had the baby who never came home. The stuff of lives, of raising kids, of doing the work of sustaining a marriage for 50 years after the kiss by the Christmas tree by the coat check. Of my grandfather putting a family on his back while working decades of double shifts as a steam fitter putting pipes into buildings, building boilers. When he used to sing and tell jokes and juggle dates with showgirls. So his four daughters could go to college. So one of their sons could be talking to you now. I didn't find the record. I don't know if it ever existed. And so the sound of a night at the Club Baghdad is lost to history. And that is just the way these things go. But on the last day, literally on the last day that I lived in the house before I packed up my Saturn and drove out to L.A., and before my family sold the house, like six months later, I made a final dig. I found three things worth keeping. I found a photo taking of my grandparents on that same day on the beach, before the car ride and everything that followed. They are young and they are beautiful. I found another photo of a friend of theirs, a thin man with a thin mustache, also on the beach, clearly taken on that same day, holding a couple of apples in front of his groin like they're his I find the combination of the two photos incredibly moving. And I found a stack of yellowed, crumbling papers. They were typewritten scripts that my grandfather wrote for the nightclub act. They're sketches, they're comedy bits. And they're not very funny, but I find them incredibly moving. 
And here, for what it's worth, I present one of those skits from the Club Baghdad, not performed since 1940, sometime around the day my grandfather held my grandmother's hand in his, and her hand was so small. Hey, pal, do anything interesting this weekend? Oh, boy, did I. (laughs) You don't say. Did you go to that new picture down at the Odeon? No, but I saw quite a scene. That's so? Why don't you paint me a picture then? I spent the weekend at a nudist camp. What now? A nudist camp. Jaybirds, as far as the eye could see. They call it Nudie Valley. So, was it a fancy place? Like Vanderbilt Mansion. They had a butler. How could you tell they were butlers if they weren't wearing butler clothes? Well, I could tell he wasn't a maid. Ho! (laughs) There was a big masquerade ball. I saw this old gal there. Had the varicose veins all over her body. What was she dressed as? A road map. It was true. Look at, her, look at her up close and you see the whole Tennessee Valley Authority mapped in her veins. So, tell me, did you see any nice-looking girls? Did I ever? I saw this one girl all in blue. I asked, what are you? She said, freezing. Oh. So, did you have a costume? I wore red. I thought it was a nudist camp. It was a rash. Oh. How'd you get the rash? There's a row of hedges that separate the men from the women. Some of us fellas were taking a look-see when the cops came and kicked us out. Why'd they go and do that? Too much beating around the bush. (laughs) Nate DeMeo with origin stories from his podcast, The Memory Palace. You can listen to it online at our website, MaximumFun.org, or you can get it in iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. After a break, David Gordon Green talks about his new movie, Prince Avalanche, and he'll tell us what it's like to boss Clint Eastwood around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, this is Dave Hill from Dave Hill's Podcasting Incident on the Maximum Fun Network. I'm here with my lovely and talented secretary, Miss Shana Feinberg. Shana, I understand you've been doing a bit of research to find out what listeners think of the show. Yes, I have, Dave. And what have you found? Well, people that love it say they love it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Awesome. What, what do people that hate it say? They hate it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Oh. Listen to Dave Hill's podcast dancing on the Maximum Fun Network, motherfucker. Was that too much? No, I think it was perfect. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You could never accuse my guest David Gordon Green of failing to follow his muse. His films have ranged from the poetic art film George Washington, which was his first feature, to the stoner action comedy Pineapple Express. A broad range, to be sure. His new film, Prince Avalanche, is somewhere in between those poles. It's about a pair of men working on a road crew in a burned-out forest in Texas. They're a bit of an odd couple. One, played by Paul Rudd, loves fishing alone and sends money back home to his girlfriend. The other played by Emile Hirsch, is the girlfriend's brother. He lives for the weekend when he can go to town and try to meet girls. Here they are in a scene from the film, arguing over what to listen to while they paint road lines deep in the forest. 
Emil Hirsch is, I should say, on the road deep in the forest. <laughs> Emil Hirsch's character, Lance, has just turned off Rudd's character's German language tape. What are you doing? I was falling asleep. I thought it'd be a good idea to change the station situation. It wasn't. I was listening to that. I know, but it's boring for the rest of us. I was falling asleep doing work. So what? So, I want to play this tape. I want to play this tape to get motivated and pumped up. I know, I was falling asleep doing work. I know you want to play that tape, but look, you know what, Lance? I'm not here to start a fight. That's not what I want to do. But I need to listen to my language tapes in order to become proficient and perform to the best of my abilities. What about... What about the equal time agreement? That doesn't apply to studies and education. What do you mean? The equal time boombox agreement doesn't apply in this case, all right? That's just for recreation. Oh, come on! Hey! Don't push my buttons, all right? You are not the boss here. I'm the boss. I hired you. And we have a lot of work to do. We could sit here arguing about language and music and blah dee blah but we got a lot of work to do, we got a lot of lines to paint, and it's a very long road. I suggest you start the machine and keep it going. Okay. Yeah. Alvin. Yeah. You have your tool belt on backwards. Prince Avalanche is in theaters and on demand this week. David Gordon Green, welcome back to the show. Good to see you, Jesse. It's good to see you, too. So you uh, you live in Austin. Do you go into the woods? I do go into the woods. You know, a lot of this movie kind of came uh, came as a result of me wanting to film in a, in a place that felt remote and detached that I could make a movie very quietly and unassuming. And I've always been drawn to the kind of meditative isolation of... of of camping and fishing and uh, being out in the wilderness. And very often I do that alone. I live part-time in Colorado and really enjoy kind of detaching from technology, detaching from social situations and going in and kind of just stirring in my own strangeness. Do you mean that literally? I mean, like literally by yourself? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are kind of into this too. So it can kind of you can kind of have partner in crime and, and not really get on each other's nerves the way Alvin and Lance in the film do. Um, but but a lot of the the character dynamic, kind of that odd couple dynamic, as you say, is is me reflecting on how frustrating it is being with myself sometimes. And in a lot of the dialogue between these two characters, between Paul and Emile's characters, is is banter, internal monologue that I may have in my own personal life, kind of struggling between the practical and the romantic side of my interest. And here we're exhibiting it in a in a strange buddy character piece. I mean, Paul Rudd's character presents himself as being exceptionally independent and craving the silence and wanting to live with himself in the woods and just wanting to paint and write letters home and that kind of thing. And I think that as the film develops, we realize that he's really not that good at living with himself. I wonder if you ever feel like, if you ever feel like you're out there by yourself and you realize maybe this is a trick and you're not the peaceful man that you imagine yourself to be on the river just hanging out and fly fishing or whatever. Absolutely. You know, I never get lonely. That is not a that is not a, a skill I have is, is loneliness or boredom. Um, but I do often get out there and wonder what the hell I'm doing. And, and, and that's kind of where the fun of the movie happens is there's the side of, of me and I'm sure a lot of people that love to step away from the chaos, step away from the familiar. And then you, know, you sit there and you kind of reevaluate things and you think, wait, where's the party? And so and, and, and the two characters really, really illustrate that dynamic. I'm really – I mean 
maybe it's because I grew up in the city, but um, it just fills me with existential dread. <laughs> quiet in nature and stuff. Yeah, well, see, I don't. I'm not like afraid of bears. I just, I, I would trying to sit quietly genuinely makes me feel fearful. Yeah, well, I, I can see that. I can see that, and, I, and I've, I've happened upon a, uh, a bear too that made me feel a little uneasy. I can't say I'm, I'm the bravest man in the world. I'm not Grizzly Adams, um, or uh, what's his name, Timothy Treadwell from Grizzly Man. Um, but I really do like to be able to strip it all down, and I realize I don't really utilize. I don't. I don't own much. I don't have much. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of people have a lot of toys or devices or material. You know, uh, I was telling you before the show that I still wear the T-shirt we got la- that I got given to me last time um, that we we spoke several years ago, which says um, <laughs> that I'm a man of high fashion. <laughs> um, but other than that. You know, I really do like to um, see how little I can survive on. And, and I really identified with Emil in, in that movie, Into the Wild, although that character made some questionable decisions. I find myself doing the same thing. Uh, and, and I thought he was a, a, a wonderful actor to be able to put in more of a preposterous role and kind of amplify things that I know are funny about Emil and illustrate the contrast to um, Chris McCandless, the character he played in that film. Uh, so it was fun to be able to put the absurdist, strange, comedic role of the film in Emil's hands and then with Paul, cater to the more dramatic emotional side that he hasn't really um, utilized in, in film too often. He does in his stage work, but um, he's just an incredibly skilled actor. And then putting the two very unlikely co-stars together in a room, um, or I say in a room, out in the wilderness, um, it became like summer camp. So we were all a very small crew of probably 15 people. Um, the shoot was about 16 days, and it was just just a, a perfect period of time to be able to... to to disappear into the shadow of the branches and stumble around in the ashes of this forest fire and and get to know each other and make a movie that really evolved in an organic way that we never would have expected. 16 people is actually pretty close to a solitary experience when it comes to making a movie. Yeah, but it's really nice. Again, you know, just as I like to do that kind of on my own and, and take those moments of meditation and step away from the world around me and certainly the circus of the industry that I, 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 I frequent, um, this was a great example of a project that we could step away from the traditional structure and development and, and even release of a film. Um, there was no trailers. Uh, you know, everybody was sitting in camping chairs and, um, you know, we had coolers full of sandwiches and drinks. And, you know, it was, it was very much just like, um, you know, kind of car camping. So, it was, But it was, a, it was a great time to be able to really construct characters and nuances that weren't burdened by the big logistics of production. Um, there weren't major contracts because there wasn't a lot of money to be thrown around or negotiate. Or um, the crew was there uh, because they loved the project and they really wanted to do something kind of experimental and get back to what it's like when you have Mother Nature and um, the sun. Uh, the sun is your primary lighting source, and it's just about you and your actors dancing and your compositions. I, I want to play another scene from the movie. Um, in this scene, uh, Paul Rudd's character is writing a letter back home. Uh, to his uh, girlfriend, and um, I think Paul Rudd's just great, and Paul Rudd's tremendous. I can't say I miss city life. I was beginning to feel like I was one of those heads carved into the mountains of those presidents of the United States and the Dakotas, lonely among all those people I couldn't talk to. As for your brother, the countryside isn't teaching him anything other than how much he misses the big active nightlife. I think that you and the family need to think of something else as far as his occupation. He quite realistically could never amount to anything. 
How can you be his age and not know how to gut a fish, or build a tent, or tie a knot? Sometimes I wonder if he is learning disabled, or has a bad disease. Not that I dislike him or anything. He's totally fine. There's something about Paul Rudd, and his just and his just on screen. I've never met him in real life. I bet he's a nice guy in real life. But on screen, his just pleasantness is like effervescent. <laughs> and so you can have him say something that asinine. <laughs> and it it play like you you don't you understand that this guy is an unprint un, unmentionable on the radio word, but you you let him get away with it. Yeah, I, I think I'm really drawn to characters like that. They have a strange charm about them, even though they're doing often unlikable or unadmirable things. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of my time on this HBO series, Eastbound and Down, and, and making a character like Kenny Powers. You have to have something very likable way deep in, internally so that you can get away with the most unlikable things on the exterior. And I think Paul has a lot of those qualities, too. And his character, Alvin, in, in Prince Avalanche, um, you know, it's not a comedic role per se, but there's just that, that clip is a great example of like the awkwardness of the way that he words things. Like he's got this this faux cockiness about him, this confidence that um, slowly through the movie starts to kind of dissolve uh, in front of him. And and the beauty of of the way that Paul plays it is you can see the deterioration of this confidence in a man that needs someone to turn to and, and needs a shoulder to cry on, and then he turns and it's a jackass like Emil in the character that he plays in the movie. And so that's really where um, where I get sucked into the the emotional quality of the relationship um, element of the film. There's a lot of um, like quiet and stillness in the movie. N- not just scenes with the characters, but there are you know there are sequences of just ants crawling <laughs> and yeah. caterpillars on logs. Well, and and I don't think it's there for necessarily the pretension of the poetry um, of of nature but there's a there's a beauty to the rebirth of this of this region and watching um watching the wildfires actually happen when they were when they were ablaze was very tragic as you see how many homes and lives and and um you know it, it, it was just it was devastating to everyone in the area and it was undeniable and then when an outsider like myself goes to walk around through it i can't help but notice the kind of beauty and absurdity and and strange smile of of rebirth, and that can be the seedlings of the trees, or that can be someone reconstructing their home, or it can be a wandering caterpillar, vibrant green on a black log, you know. And I think these these little elements of nature appeal to me, and always have in movies. I've always been a, a great admirer of um, environment as a character, and uh, in films that really uh, embrace that. Movies Carol Ballard would make, for example, were always. Uh, always really exciting to me because I'd know when I was seeing Never Cry Wolf or a movie like that that it was going to be just as much about nature as it was going to be about the man on this journey. And that's just something that's always appealed to me and to be able to have the the time within the narrative to take those meditative journeys with the camera. You know, this is an 88-minute movie, 65-page screenplay. We wanted to make something short and sweet but gave you something to think about. Uh, and in a summer where every movie is two and a half hours of chaos, I thought it'd be nice to have something that was kind of sweet-natured and, and pleasant and funny and emotional um, and over relatively quickly. <laughs> you, you know, it, it's funny. I, I was thinking about you being interested in uh, place as a character in film, and it reminded me of your, your first feature film, George Washington, which feels to me, I mean, as as a viewer, felt to me, I mean, it's almost like uh, 
you know, it's almost like a fixed camera pointed at a place while these characters have really powerful emotional experiences with each other as they pass through the frame. You know, like it is it's so grounded in a in a physical space that um you know, that feels almost like the the driving force of the movie. Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. I mean, this this film stemmed out of the result of me being enthusiastic about this place and so that was the that was the plot, that was the main character and then it was integrating things that would 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 keep that plot going. You know, I'm a I'm a huge fan of um, you know, any any Godfrey Reggio and Ron Fricke and these guys that make very non-narrative environmental um portraits, but at the same time personally I need to really invest a sense of character and a sense of identity uh, a sense of narrative into these into uh, in, into that 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 same enthusiasm. Um, so it's it's a fun way to be able to um, have great production value too. You know, you, we're not building massive sets and spending a hundred million dollars to create something. We're we're filming something that couldn't be filmed, couldn't be created without uh, a massive amount of money. So I love the idea of finding a place and then setting uh, a narrative within it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking with the director, David Gordon Green. He readily admits that his film and television career has been pretty weird. He's directed artful, dramatic movies like uh, George Washington, stoner comedies like Pineapple Express, and even a Super Bowl commercial with Clint Eastwood. David Gordon Green's new movie stars Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch. It's called Prince Avalanche. I want to just so folks can get a sense if uh, they haven't seen your uh, big show business movies. I want to play a clip from The Sitter uh, because it was a very different movie from the kind of poetic, uh, slightly time shifted, extra diegetic dialogue. Um, you know, shots of burnt out trees that the new movie is. It, it's a really kind of dark, crazy movie where Jonah Hill is a. Um, a babysitter who goes on this crazy adventure with the kids that he's supposed to be babysitting, um, who are terrible children, if I remember correctly. Um, and so in, in this in this clip from the movie, he's driving a minivan. He's got the kids in the minivan. He's in a high-speed chase, and he's being chased by a drug dealer, and he's trying to shake the drug dealer from his tail. Okay, Look out the window! Have your money. I just, I just want to be your friend. Are you serious? You've been really wishy-washy about the whole thing. No, I know. I've been going through my own personal situation. It's really scary entering into a new friendship. I just don't want to deal with a broken heart. You know what I mean? Maybe I don't want to be friends. How's that? He really wants to be your friend, Carl. I really want to be your friends. Honestly, I've just been burned in the past, bud. Seriously? Kaboom! Oh! oh! That movie has this this crazy intensity throughout. It's like crazy. It's like watching an action movie version of of After Hours. Yeah, well, that's what we were really setting out in that movie is using inf- uh, inspiration like After Hours or Risky Business or Adventures in Babysitting. And a lot of the movies we grew up with, you know, when when you're 14 years old and want to want to go to a movie that summer, and this was. Definitely an homage to to that kind of. Uh, but, but the stakes feel. I mean, in the sitter, in Adventures in Babysitting, I think you never feel like you're not watching Adventures in Babysitting. One of the really interesting things to me about the sitter, and maybe one of the reasons why it was a modest success, I don't know, is that it is genuinely pretty intense. Like it ratchets pretty intensely. It's silly stuff is happening, but the tone is pretty raw. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Again, that's kind of the, the fun of. 
um, of casting and getting actors like um, Sam Rockwell involved, and that was really fun. If I mean, if he's going to be the bad guy in your ass, I, he could barely beat me up, but he could probably beat me up. <laughs> Um, we talked a little bit about Eastbound and Down, which is uh, just such a wonderful television show on HBO. And the star of the movie, the star of the show, excuse me, is Danny McBride, who you'd worked with for for a long time before the show even existed. And he plays this former professional baseball pitcher who then becomes a professional baseball pitcher again. Uh, spoiler alert. And he is just the worst kind of person in almost every way imaginable, except that there's something about Danny McBride that makes you want to be friends with him no matter what he does. <laughs> and uh, I, I want to play a clip from the show. This is, uh, this is Danny McBride as Kenny Powers. And he has basically just ch- – his best friend has died because there's a funeral going on. And he rolls in – it looks like maybe 10 or 15 minutes late – playing music on a boombox to announce himself and his friend's name is uh his friend's name's Shane and he without any one bidding him to do so just launches into a little speech end of intro to funeral speech <laughs> good afternoon to everyone I'm Kenny Powers and if you're here and you're someone Shane cared about someone Shane loved. Or maybe you're just somebody who has no business being here at all. Who's just here because you think it's going to make you more popular. Like Ivan. Everyone's wondering why you're here. Because you didn't even know Shane. Don't worry about it, though. It's cool. No one's complaining. You know, Shane and I used to f*** around big time. We'd ride our vehicles around. We also watched a lot of cinema films together. We loved the movie Top Gun. And oftentimes, we would joke with each other. Who was Goose and who was Tom Cruise? Well, now that Shane is dead, I guess we know who is Goose. Oh, my God. Shane is Goose. Because in that motion picture, Goose dies. So Shane is is dead, so he would be Goose. And that would make me Tom Cruise. I'm Tom Cruise, guys. (laughs) (laughs) That was an amazing uh, scene to film because the the audience, uh, the background actors in that funeral scene had no idea what was about to happen. <laughs> so it was very funny just watching the genuine horror on their face as he started saying what he was saying. Um, how, you know, television is historically uh, a, a medium where the, you know, the showrunner is a writer and is in charge of, you know, directing the writing of the show. And, you know, maybe there's sort of an aesthetic template set by whoever directed the pilot. But mostly the director is, uh, you know, is a sort of uh, functionary, you know, a, a person who's in charge of making sure everything goes off correctly rather than a person who's making a lot of big aesthetic choices. You've been involved with these guy, these other guys that make this show for a long time. And I get the impression that maybe the way that Eastbound and Down is made is different. Is, is, that, actu- is that actually Correct. It, it is different. That show is is really constructed like a film, and if you don't have a very involved, active direction, then you're going to miss so many opportunities of what Danny's brilliant at is watching him think of what to say next. Is one of my favorite things in the world, and and the show is full of those. And in the edit, we just we leave all these strange pauses and Im, Im, imperfect wordings 
Um, and that's that clip we just heard, just the way he words popular. Um, <laughs> I loved how he said riding around in, in vehicles. Yeah, in vehicles. It's just like he's got a good concept of what this what the script is because he's one of the writers on it, and he gets the idea, <laughs> and he doesn't have to hit the nail on the head. Um, and I have been on uh, on television shows where the writers say, "No, but what about what's written? You're supposed to say what's written." And that would be very frustrating for me to have to like feel that something felt correct and then it wasn't what was written so we'd have to do it again and that would that would be pretty odd i think there's something really amazing on eastbound and down about the way that kenny powers his character essentially bluffs his way into his successes i mean he's he's he is sort of a washed up disaster. I mean in an in some kind of objective reality he is sort of a washed up disaster, but he bluffs his way into these situations through the kind of thing that we just heard, this horrible behavior. Um but then he always he it it crumbles for him. Just the way that speech sort of falls apart at the end. <laughs> like he he we have to just when we're thinking like, you know what? Let's go on this ride with this guy. This is going to be, you know, I'm not going to judge him anymore. This, let's just have fun with this great fun guy. Then he has to deal with the stuff around him falling apart. Yeah, and there's no great redemption of that character, and um, and it is fun. It's just w- watching a train wreck, and and um, there's a great vulnerability to that character that I think makes it more than just an audacious comedy. And I think there's several episodes, particularly towards the ending of an episode, where we'll really find a sadness in him and, and let the camera linger on him as, as the the offended parties disperse and he's left to just stew in his own nastiness. Um, there's a real reflective quality of the show. And, and I think the, the, there's there's two types of fans. There's fans that um, know who we are and the kind of sense of humor and what we're poking fun at and, and what we're, the picture we're painting and certainly a portrait of the South that is uh, is not too far from realistic. And then there's other guys that are like, fans of the show because it's just like they really are. And I think those are those are the scary ones, but we do encounter a few of those guys too. I mean there's there are it is a popular comic archetype to have a guy who's a blowhard who's who has a little bit of authority and uses more than he has. I mean, you know, it's in Shakespeare comedies or whatever. And there are people who are totally amazing at it. I mean, you think of uh, you know, Will Ferrell as Ron Burgundy in in Anchorman. You know, there he's he's a, it couldn't be funnier. I mean, it's just so so funny uh, doing that. But I think the special thing about Danny McBride, not just in this, but especially in this, is showing the part at the end where it's where it, it's really sincerely sad. Yeah, and 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 that's that's really what keeps me invested in in working on the show and keeps me curious about the show. It's interesting. I just finished the my, my involvement in the fourth season. I did my three episodes and they're in production on the on the final episode and I haven't read the script because as a fan, I just I, I'm I wanna be isolated. I wanna not know where it's going. I got an email today that I started reading and I deleted because it was revealing too much about what was happening and what the fate of his character was and I and I really just I wanna be there with everyone that, that is the the audience that enjoys the show or or that hates the show. Those are interesting people too. Um, and and really, you know, be as as curious as 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 a fan gets to be. I need to ask you one question about um, your next film stars Nicolas Cage, who has had an amazing string of 
um, insane film performances. Um, I mean, his whole, I mean, his career is full of insane film performances. He has sort of defined his own acting style, which is, I think, super compelling and amazing. Um, but you know, there's been some real highlights lately, and I think I don't I don't think I'm alone in admirers of Nicolas Cage who wonder if he's a madman. Um, and I wonder, I don't, I won't ask you to give a yes or no answer. <laughs> is Nicolas Cage a madman? But I, I wonder like why you wanted to make a film with Nicolas Cage and, um, how the experience matched up to your expectations. Uh, I, w- I would say he's, I, I was excited about, um, working with him in the movie Joe and, and just in general, because I think he's one of the greatest, most charismatic actors that's ever lived. Um, in working with him, you really see a, a fearlessness, but also a vul- vulnerability, a commitment to every character, to every day, uh, a dedication to his craft above all things, above luxuries, above um, uh, above anything. He's there to work and work with the director. It's 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 funny, you know. You work with a lot of actors, and you'll hear you know tra- talking trash about other experiences. And it, it, with Nick, it's just like he loves everyone that he's worked with and has great respect for the collaborators and learns about everyone's job on set and still is as as curious as he was on, you know, Rumblefish or Valley Girl. And you can really see the 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 little boy inside of him. And I think that's a really inspiring thing. It's a, it's a really inspiring tool for a director to have. And it's interesting as a director to find a, a an actor that's that that sees what you're looking for, and then is always ready to go there and farther. He used there was a sequence in the movie where he used a venomous cottonmouth snake as a prop in his hands, uh, and, and and when he picked it up, I was just I mean I didn't I was like we can we can fake this. That's what our little rubber snake over there's for, <laughs> or that's what we can use a little rat snake and you and we'll you know shoot it strategically and and something about the. The reality of picking up something that could kill him, I think, was just a, a was a was is very apparent in the eyes of this character, and and um, is just a, a a brilliant and um, an exciting way to to begin every day with the uncertainty of survival um, and going to the creative edge with someone that's that's as willing as he is 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 you couldn't ask for more. I I want to play one more clip. This is from a commercial that you directed. And like a lot of film directors, you direct commercials from time to time on the side. And this ran during the Super Bowl and uh, featured Clint Eastwood. I think a a lot of folks might remember it. It was, uh, I mean, for a commercial, it was about as well-regarded as anything ever could be. But let's take a listen. It's halftime. Both teams are in their locker room discussing what they can do to win this game in the second half. It's halftime in America, too. People are out of work and they're hurting. And they're all wondering what they're going to do to make a comeback. And we're all scared because this isn't a game. The people of Detroit know a little something about this. They almost lost everything. But we all pull together. Now Motor City is fighting again. Um, you know, I, I, it was a very powerful commercial. Um, and I think a lot of times when you make a commercial, especially for a big, like a car company or something like that, you know, they spend like, oh, it's like $2 million and we're going to spend it all today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a big, crazy extravaganza. Um, and that commercial was as grand a commercial as there could ever be in terms of its sort of the scale of its ambition. But it's also a very 
plain and simple commercial compared to most commercials for cars. Yeah, it's kind of anti-advertising in a way, and and I actually it, it's 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 nice to bring that 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 spot up because that that experience of that production really inspired the making of Prince Avalanche. It led from from that uh, it was conversations during that production. Um, it, it was such a stripped down crew and such a um, a beautiful experience of waking up every day and not exactly knowing what you're doing. And, and you know, sure we filmed some cars and doing some things, but it was about slices of life in in America at a very vulnerable time in the country and, and um, you know, kind of provocative in its own production. Um, we shot in New Orleans and, and pr- mostly in New Orleans in the San Francisco area. And it was over a, a two-week period of time where it was just a very stripped-down crew. Um, our cinematographer on that, Eric Trimmel, um, was just really monumental in, in showing the efficiency of, of where you could put a, a camera at the right time of day and um, how to catch expression in the human face and, and really find the uh, the beauty to the landscape but also the situations and also have a, have a message that I thought at the time was, you know, not not politically aggressive but, but felt as if it hit a note in our culture that, you know, was, wasn't harmful to hear. Was it, what, did it feel that way for you? I mean, did you feel, I mean, the, the part of it that seemed odd to me watching it is it's such an emotionally powerful thing. And then I'm also thinking, oh, and it's also a Chrysler commercial. Um, but it is an emotionally powerful thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think that's something that uh, the, the, the objective of advertising these days, and the more sophisticated advertising, sure, there's, there's very generic commercials that will always exist and the product is front and center. But in terms of some of the more sophisticated, sub- subversive uh, advertising, it's, it's just finding an interesting way to work your product into cultural awareness. And it's not necessarily – um, just hitting you over the head with the brand or what it is, but it's it's um, people talking about it. People talking about the spot is equally as value as if you just have a close up of um, of your product. So, you know, in in my opinion, it's it's more important because it works into the vernacular and it works it into the um, like you know the the conversations over coffee. Most importantly, it's it's getting people talking. As any of my work, I think is 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 divisive. Um, from my vulgar comedies to um, my my car commercials, and I kind of like the fact that I can exist and put a fingerprint in culture. You know, I just watched that film. This is the end, and the fact that they spoof Pineapple Express and and Your Highness, and you know, and kind of ribs at uh, ribs at um, at Clint Eastwood's uh, performance in that in that commercial will be satirized on Saturday Night Live. Like these are elements that just make me in awe of the fact that I have this opportunity. Uh, at least in this day, to to create things that can affect people and get people talking and love it or hate it, it can exist for a minute. There's something really powerful about just Clint Eastwood. I mean, that was, you know, like Clint Eastwood is such a powerful presence. Yeah, and an amazing guy. I was, I mean, and I was fortunate enough to be, but he said I was the first guy in like 10 years to, to direct him. <laughs> it was It was a very interesting point. Uh, and we were. Did you tell him to do anything? Uh, you know what? Were you it, like, let's let's do this. Okay, next take a little faster, Clint. I I knew I knew that I wanted to get something really special out of out of him, and it's easy for an actor to say, okay, I'm going to get well paid for a commercial and 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 say the lines that I'm supposed to say. But for him, um, I thought it was very important to for me um, to access something in him that that felt very genuine and very honest, and he was really. Um, I mean, just a warm-hearted, great guy that was, was – we did probably 40 takes 
up and down the the corridor over at the Coliseum and you know when, when we were resetting it it was all steady cam shots so we'd kind of up walk up and down the corridor and um on the on the I would, I would slow the pace on the long walks back so I could get stories of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and outlaw Josie Wales and some of my favorite of Clint's movies were and, you scared of him I feel like I'd be scared of him you know what? He's just a guy that puts you at ease with a nice handshake, and he looks you in the eye and and, and shoots you straight. And um, in a world of a lot of people trying to distance themselves or keep themselves at arm reach, you know, he drove himself to set that day, and all of a sudden, everybody's like, "That's very cool," <laughs> you know. And he just really—you can see why he has the success he's had because he's got the magnetism. Well, David Gordon Green, I've taken up a ton of your time. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great talking to you as always. David Gordon Green's new film, Prince Avalanche, is in theaters and available on VOD this week. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. When the neo-soul movement was at its peak in the early 2000s, there was a lot of seriousness, a lot of talk about reclaiming a lost art and the dangers of pop and the evils of commercial radio and all that kind of stuff. And there was also one kind of goofy-looking white guy whose dad was on growing pains, making some of the most charming pop soul since the Jackson 5. His name was Thick. First name, Robin. Some like to keep heat on, some never had enough. He was a young songwriter with a famously dorky dad, Alan Thicke from Growing Pains, who, by the way, himself had been a songwriter. Did you know that Alan Thicke wrote the theme from Different Strokes? That is true. Anyway... In Robin Thicke's first video, he rode through the streets on a BMX bike with his shoulder-length hair flapping in the breeze. And the song was about sex, like it was a sexy guy song. But I just feel like the best adjective to describe it would be maybe genial. Because you walk pretty, because you talk pretty, because you make me sick and I'm not Robin Thicke's first album was shepherded by the legendary A&R man Andre Harrell. This is the guy who discovered Mary J. Blige and Puff Daddy, among other people. The record came out in 2002 as Cherry Blue Skies. It bombed. And then it was released again the next year as A Beautiful World. The second time around, Thicke had a cosign from Pharrell and a new, slightly less goofy haircut. But the record bombed again. In fact, Robin Thicke didn't become a star until five years later. But all those record buyers who ignored him the first time around, totally wrong. Because this album is tremendous. Here's an example. Lil Wayne heard this song, Shooter, which is the first one on the record, while he was driving around in New Orleans. And he ended up just rapping on top of it and putting it on his album, Otherwise, completely unchanged. Bang. 
dive, chip in the die. I hope you bleed late. I'ma play X-ray, help y'all see the fake. I'm just trying to be the great, trying to get a piece of cake. Take it off your plate, eat it right in your face. They got a whole lot to say, but I don't listen. Call me automatic wheezy. I keep spitting pop. All these riches and all these riches Like his dad, the truth is that Robin Thicke is a little bit of a genial cheeseball. Maybe it's the Canadian blood. But what's wrong with music being pleasant? This is a guy who grabbed a few moves from Michael, a few from the Beatles, a little bit of Stevie. And, you know, he brought some brightness into the world. And it worked artistically, even if the cash register wasn't exactly working over time. Of course... Now, 10 years later, Robin Thicke's a hit-making phenomenon. He's married to Paula Patton, one of the most beautiful women in the world. He's not even that goofy-looking anymore. But, but you know, you kind of get the feeling he knew it would work out all along. That's my upshot. I had my dreams That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is provided by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. Use your podcast app on your phone. Get it in your iTunes computer, whatever you like. It's free. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at maximumfun.org. I really do read the emails. I don't always reply because I get a lot of email, but I do my best. And a big friendly hello to all of the new folks listening to us on WGLT in Illinois. Anyway, that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.